ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Thank you for listening to Where the Big Boys Play podcast. This is the second part of our discussion on Starcade 1987. Thanks a lot, Chad. Boom. Same <laughs> exact way. Where the Big Boys Play. So, so going into the uh, fifth match on the card, we have uh, the world ch- champs, Arn and Tully, um, two of the four horsemen, versus the Row Warriors. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Row Warriors, um, Chicago's their stomping ground. They're, they're really over in Chicago. Um, some crappy 80s music plays that's clearly uh, dubbed in um, as Tully, Arn, and J.J. Dillamorkow. Then as the roadies come out, um, the music that plays is clearly the Crockett Cup music. And I know that because I spent quite some time editing it into the start of our show. So um, they reuse the, the Crockett Cup music uh, here to introduce the Row Warriors. And I'm guessing there are copyright reasons uh, for this. Arn and Tully had won the belts uh, from the Rock and Roll Express back in September. I've got a note here, as we mentioned earlier. Now this is a big time uh, match here, you know, on paper, I think this is a dream match. Not for a smart fan, but for kind of a, uh, I guess in kayfabe terms, this is a, this is a, you know, two big, big name teams here facing each other. Um, Arn and Hawk start out, and Hawk overpowers Arn, bails, uh, and then stalls. Tully is in now, and uh, Hawk is too powerful for him as well. Um, Tully uh, uh, bails an animal um, gorilla presses him back into the ring Tully uh, tries to um, run away now he actually tries you know he he tries to leave the ring Um, Hawk catches him before he can uh, before he can leave Um, Tully tries to come back but animal catches him with a full power slam coming from the top rope which is pretty uh I'm always impressed when somebody can not only catch somebody coming from the top rope but go into the power slam from that. Um, there's an amazing moment now as Arn interrupts a pin attempt with a double axe handle and then Animal stares at him and Arn puts his hand to his forehead as if he's looking out from a ship um, and stares back at him. And uh, I really enjoyed that little moment there between Arn and Animal staring at each other. Um, Ross theorizes that Arn is uh, doing anything he can to slow the Warriors' momentum here. Um, he gets some offense in on Animal, um, but uh, Animal comes back strong. Arn and Tully need to regroup and uh, think about this, so they kind of huddle in the corner for a while. Um, Hawk is in now, and uh, Arn and Tully try to double team him, but Hawk gets a double clothesline um, for two. Uh, and he then gorilla presses Tully into a bear hug from Animal. Um, Tully is really pissed off now, and he audibly calls Animal a son of a bitch, um, and tries to go toe to toe with him and fails. So 
I think the story in this bit is that Tully's just lost his temper, he's lost his head because uh, he's so frustrated that he can't get anything out of the World Warriors. Arn comes in and uh, he's cross as well. Uh, Animal Irish whips him and he, um, he he bails. It's a nice little moment. But Animal kind of puts him against the ropes and Arn grabs the bottom rope and runs away. Um, this is a classic heel strategy. Animal gives chase. Um, Arn comes back into the ring and goes for a pile driver, but that's not happening. And we get another gorilla press. Uh, Tully comes in, uh, Hawk comes in and goes for another gorilla press, but Arn takes his knee out before he's able to do it. And there's your transition. So Tully attacks the knee, um, and then Arn wraps it around the ring post. Tully nails the knee with a, with a chair. Uh, we get a DTT from Arn, and then a big kick out from Hawk. You know when they when they kick out so strong that the other guy literally kind of jumps from the uh, from the pin attempt. Um, Tully comes in and he knee drops the knee to set up for the figure four. Um, Arn puts a puts him in a spinning leg lock. Uh, Tully applies the figure four now. His face is just filled with hatred as he's uh, pulling on the leg. Arn comes in with some pin attempts um, and he catches a pair of uh, kneel knees in the balls. Um, we get a hot tag to Animal, um, but Tully's on the outside and he, uh, he trips Animal before he can get going. We get a ref bump, uh, and the ref is of course Tommy Young, so of course we could get a ref bump. Um, Arn goes over the top rope, uh, which would be a DQ, but obviously Tommy Young is out so he doesn't see it. Um, the Doomsday device uh, on Arn gets a three, but uh, I smell a dusty finish coming here because they made a big point of mentioning the top rope spot. Um, the Chicago crowd goes apeshit, but uh, Earl Hebner comes out to tell Young about the top rope spot, and yep, we get a DQ, and the Royal Warriors aren't giving the belts back. They they walk back down the aisle with the belts. Chad, what do you think? Honestly, though, until the finish, this was one of the better Road Warriors matches I've ever seen. Uh, definitely followed a clear structure, uh, but they look like monsters. The crowd was going crazy for them. Uh, Arn and Tully was bumping, uh, great for them. Arn was mixing in and Tully a lot of moves that you were talking about, like the stare that Arn gave, or just little, uh, signs of frustration in their facial expressions. Uh, and then when they actually gained control of the match, that was done real well, too, where they really attacked them, and uh, we got a kind of vicious side of them. Uh, but then that leads to the finish, which is absolutely uh, dreadful and horrible. Uh, the replay clearly shows that unless Tommy Young has eyes in the back of his head, he could have not seen uh, Animal throw him over the rope. Uh, so that's bad enough, and th this really is a match, you know, this is a match that everybody points to that necessarily really killed uh, WCW for um, Chicago, or the NWA in this territory for a Chicago market, and you can really see that here, is this was just a complete bullshit finish that really pissed a lot of people off. Uh, which is so disappointing because if you just replace what we saw with, you know, them getting the uh, Doomsday and winning the titles, 
it would have been a great moment, and I think this show would be a lot more memorable overall. Uh, so it's unfortunate, but uh, it, I still would say it was a good match, but a really, really shitty finish. Uh, maybe the worst one we've seen so far in a big matchup. Solomon? Yeah, I like the match too. Um, I found myself wanting it to go longer just because I thought it was such a good match. I've always liked the Road Warriors offense. I mean, uh, Hawk threw an awesome dropkick and so did Animal, I believe, threw an awesome dropkick in the match. Um, again, like um, Chad, hated the finish. Uh, this is a point where, this is one of those things where you want to give the crowd what they want. And they wanted, everybody was primed for the Road Warriors to win the titles. It was overdue. Um, this is kind of where you, I think Dusty or whoever booked it outsmarted themselves and you pissed the fans off. And like Chad said, um, uh, there's speculation that this is what killed the town for the NWA was this match right here, the, the way they booked the finish. But yeah, I loved uh, the Road Warriors offense in it. I mean, even Hawk selling that figure four was pretty cool. And this is a match where I think the Road Warriors, they have this reputation that I think they don't deserve that, you know, they don't sell. But I thought they, you know, I, I thought they were pretty good at selling, um, you know, hawking that figure four. And uh, I like the way uh, just the, the four horsemen, they kind of, they went outside the ring, they kind of regrouped, and you could tell they were frustrated because they aren't totally weren't able to match power for power. So they had to go to kind of the, to work the leg or to kind of use some of those methods to, to take an advantage. So I thought it was a great match as far as for what it was for the time that we had it before the finish. I would have liked to seen it, seen it go a little longer. And like Chad said, um, the Road Warriors should have came out on top. Yeah, well, I really like this match. Um, and uh, I, if you think about it, it's actually a very similar story to the Makita versus Terry Taylor match. Um, only done where the heels get a bit more out of it, you know. Um, it was worked very logically. Hawk sold again. Um, and he even kept... Uh, if I, I was watching out to see if he kept selling the leg after the stretch sequence, and sure enough, he did. Um, if you watch the finish again, he he is very kind of slightly limping there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, I really like the kind of body of the match. Now, unlike you two, I actually think the bullshit finish worked um, in that the kind of Weasley heels get a cheap victory. Um, but the roadies, I mean, the note I've got here is that the road warriors don't lose any heat because, you know, the fans, you know, they still kind of technically won the match. Uh, but clearly, uh, clearly, if history says that, that I'm wrong, I'm, uh, I'm willing to, uh, I'm willing to believe it. You know, if it killed the town, then clearly it wasn't a, it wasn't a good finish. Um, but I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess the whole thing with the dusty finish is that. Um, it's a it's a good strategy where everybody wins type thing, but I I guess he goes to that well once too often here. Yeah, I think that's the main point here is we're two years removed from the uh, original Dusty finish at Starcade '85, and it was such a common thread at this time. And uh, I think again, you've got to know your audience, and when you're dealing with a Chicago type audience, that is, uh, you know, very smarkish and really wanted to have that big moment of their hometown team winning the titles. Uh, I, don't, I, I mean, I think in some regards with the finish, they were a little confused by what happened because of that. 
but there, there's clearly statistics done where you can look at attendance figures and just see that uh, it, it really was a slow go uh, before WCW or NWA drew in Chicago uh, once again, even when they come back for, uh, for instance, with like uh, the Chi-Town Rumble in uh, 89, uh, the pay-per-view will do. Uh, it's significantly down from the attendance for this show. And, and I mean, Chicago was a big time for them, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the towns with their uh, uh, biggest penetration besides the southeast. Uh, so losing it really, uh, I mean, to me, you get a sense in the 80s, I haven't done extensive research on the figures, but you do get a sense in the 80s that as, as Vance was establishing himself, uh, Chicago actually was a town that in some ways was a little bit up for grabs as a kind of middle ground area where uh, both both companies could be really successful in and uh, this match really kind of changed that. And did, uh, t- 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 two questions here. Firstly, why didn't uh, Dusty give the Road Warriors the belts here? Does anybody know? I, I'm just thinking maybe he's going to the old adage that they didn't need the belts to draw, but it, this kind of this match kind of reminds me a little bit of the Hogan Bachwinkle match at Super Sunday in the AWA where Hogan won it and then they pulled a, a BS finish, and um, they said that you know the AWA kind of although the AWA drew good after that, um, so it kind of reminds me of that. Maybe he was going with that old uh, thinking that you know they don't need the belts to draw, uh, which yeah, and in some cases it's true, but I think this, this was a case where it was the absolute right time to put the belts on, on the Road Warriors. Yeah, and the thing is, they could have always dropped them back. But I guess, I mean, I'm just thinking as the booker here, I guess one of the problems with the Road Warriors is that once you have the belts on them, how the hell do you get them off them again? Cause well, yeah, I guess you have a template, what the AWA did with uh, when the Garvin and Regal beat the Road Warriors, I guess you pull just, I guess you have to pull something out of your bag of tricks, booking-wise, to get the belts off them. Have, have the Road Warriors ever been pinned? <laughs> like, I remember when, the, in their WF one, they don't, they don't actually drop the belts to, I think it's Money Inc. Who, I, I don't think that match, I don't believe that match ever happened. People tell me it definitely did happen, but I, I refuse to believe that um, Hawk or Animal are going to lay down for Mike Rotunda. <laughs> or anybody. I mean, can you think of a time where either of those guys was pinned? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure later on in their career uh, they lost uh, top numerous times, but in this era, from really their AWA days up to this point, uh, if they were, it was few and far between. Yeah, I can't think of any time off the top of my head. And the, the other question I have is that um, did Vince uh, manage to penetrate Chicago after this point? Are there any kind of big WF shows that ran in Chicago? I I can't think of any right off the top of my head, but I, I'm guessing they were running there eventually. Yeah, they were yeah. running there. I can't see any big shows. I can't think of any big shows right after this, like for the next couple of years, like pay-per-view shows, but um, I know they ran it regularly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they uh, definitely used the 
Rosemont Horizon as kind of their stomping grounds in Chicago, and we're still able to be successful. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it should be a. It's kind of tough. I mean, I, I don't know if I fully subscribe that you know the town was never the same after this, but you could certainly see signs that this was just a uh, a um, a match where. Really, it deflated a lot for them. Uh, so, in that regard. So, so moving on then, speaking of Dusty Rhodes, he's up next um, against Lex Luger in a cage match for the U.S. title. Um, if Dusty loses the match, he um, can't wrestle for the next 90 days. Uh, that's the stipulation on this. Um... Now, <laughs> I didn't hear it myself, but according to Meltzer, who was, uh, I believe, there in the ground, um, <laughs> um, Dusty was actually... Um, <laughs> he was actually <laughs> um, announced as £270 this time. <laughs> so he's, he's actually lost £15 since uh, Great American Bash. Um, and Luger was announced at £277, so we're meant to believe here that Luger is £7 heavier than Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> um, Johnny, <laughs> Johnny Weaver... Suspending disbelief. <laughs> yeah. Um, J J Johnny Weaver is... Uh, do you remember him? He's back, and he's holding the key to the cage. Um, nobody in the crowd seems to care at all. Probably they're still annoyed from the Road Warriors business. Um, and the announcers tell us that basically he's there to stop the other horseman getting into the cage. Um, they, yeah, they have always, a lot of times, this is like a couple of times where we've seen they uh, wheel Johnny Weaver out there, and they really <laughs> try to kind of portray him as like this legend of the business, and it just it never works out where he gets uh, a few uh, splattering of applauses from the crowd and not much of a reaction at all so it, it always seems strange that they went back to that this is I know the second or third occasion where they've either introduced him or you know said guest timekeeper I think in one occasion or something like that and now it was a force of the cage which I don't know if there was any uh, storyline that tied in there but the crowd certainly couldn't care that he was the enforcer of the cage yeah, yes, he had pictures on somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering if maybe he's like David Crockett's friend or something. That's that's a good possibility. Um, so Luger starts by uh, outrageously. Um, <laughs> this elbow drop is the highest elbow drop I've ever seen. Did anybody notice this? He jump, he literally jumps about ten feet in the air uh, for this elbow drop, and he misses it, uh, which injures his arm. Dusty grabs the arm. Um, for an armbar, and uh, Ross calls Dusty a legendary veteran, um, which is kind of the first time uh, I, I noticed with Ross with this show. This is kind of the first time we get this, um, I guess, hyperbolizing or mythologizing of certain guys. And Ross is really putting uh, Dusty over as a as a legend here. Um, Dusty uh, elbows the arm, and he's very serious. Uh, during this match. There's no dancing, 
no fucking about at all. He's just got his game face on. Um, and Shivani says that he's the master teaching the young Luger a lesson here. Um, Dusty is focused. He's decimating uh, Luger's arm. And I don't know. He, he seems like he's in a bad mood to me. This isn't like the Dusty we normally see. Um, like something seems to be on his mind. Um, probably the fact that he may be lynched after the uh, show is over by the crowd. Um, <laughs> Ross praises um, Dusty's uh, strategy um, and Luger sounds like he's having a hernia. Um, Luger's one of those guys who shouts constantly when he's um, when he's selling. Um, Luger finally gets a, gets a knee in and uh, turns the momentum and Dusty eats the cage. Um, then we get some uh, cheese grater action. Um, Dusty has colour already. He eats the cage again. We get a snapmare. Um, we get another stupidly high elbow drop from uh, from Luger, and it hits this time. Um, and uh, does he do that elbow drop later on in his career? Because I haven't noticed it. If he does, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he. Do, I know he does it at least uh, up to his first. Uh, before he entered the WWF in 93. I mean, I, I know he does that in the matches. Should be coming up versus Flair um, also. It's, a, it's amazing, that elbow drop. Um, yeah, he gets some definite elevation on that. Vertical leap is pretty high. We get some clubbing punches and axe handles now. Um, about 10 minutes have gone. Uh, I actually thought he said 20 minutes have gone, but uh, it has to only be 10. Um, Luger's already kind of blowing hard. You know, he blows hard through his uh, with through his mouth, which is another kind of Luger trademark. Um, we get a drop kick by Dusty, uh, of all things, and um, he seems to hurt his own back pretty hard there. The announcers say that he actually did more damage to himself with the drop kick. Luger capitalizes by doing a, a backbreaker, which is pretty logical. Um, and then he attempts a, a torture rack, um, and... Uh, he can't get it synced in, but I did notice that he did get him up easily enough. You know, with Dusty being a lean 270 pounds, you know, he, that's not that heavy for Luger <laughs> to get him up. Yeah, um, he does have the weight advantage, keep in mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, cover gets a two. Uh, Luger goes for an arm bar now, uh, and he's still breathing very hard. JJ Dillon outside the ring is looking smug and pleased with himself, um, which I enjoyed. Um, Ross references the fact that Dusty is a two-time Bunkhouse Stampede winner. I wonder if he was told to say that. <laughs> Dusty, starts, um, <laughs> Dusty starts shouting and um, no-selling Luger's offense. And then he sticks both his middle fingers up and audibly tells him to fuck off, which I was really shocked at. Um, so d this is uh, lending weight to my theory that Dusty's in a really bad mood this evening for some reason. Um, we get a big comeback now. DDT by Dusty gets two. Um, sleeper by the dream uh, crowd um, it d does actually start getting into this quite a bit now um, Dylan lays out Weaver outside the ring and then he kind of saunters over to the cage um, to uh, open it but he drops the key um, So and then he sees kind of a chair lying on the floor and he throws the chair in instead he gives up trying to um, open the door Dusty DDT's Luger on the chair and that's three I said we get a new U.S. champion, and uh, my question is here: Did Dusty need to win this? Solomon, I'll go to you first. You know what? I really like this match. I know a lot of um, people are, you know, kind of now down on Luger, and you know, 
Dusty gets his criticism, but I really like the story told in this match of the grizzled veteran versus the young, kind of young lion. And, uh, you know, going, you know, with Luger, uh, I kind of thought when he did the DDT, uh, when Dusty did the DDT on him on the chair, Luger noticeably waited a little bit too long, you know, wait, had to wait a little bit too long before Dusty came over and DDT'd him. And I never liked Luger's punches, but other than that, um, I really liked this match. I liked the intensity, the story they told, you know, kind of the filling out process at the beginning. And, um, you know, they just had, you know, like you said, Dusty just had an intensity about him. And I thought Luger played up, uh, with his limitations. He did, he did good in what he does. And that's kind of that power, the power moves very methodical. Um, and I felt I had no problem with Dusty getting the title, especially since, um, he didn't really hold it for a long time afterwards. Um, and, you know, Dusty, even the press conference after the little pseudo press conference they had, he was, uh, you know, really gave, um, graduated Luger and gave Luger props and kind of just hinted that he might be retiring. So I thought it captured that moment of, uh, you know, the, it could be the legendary veterans last hurrah. So I like the match. Chad? Uh, so- Solomon may be, uh, on his own on this one. I, I did not like this match. I thought that, uh, the, I, I, I agree with the story. Uh, that they were telling was kind of interesting, uh, but I didn't think that it was uh, e- executed well. Uh, a lot of long arm bars on this match, uh, which made the match drag out for me. Uh, Dusty's comeback was pretty good uh, at the end. Um, he, he gets a decent pop for winning the belt, but I do think it was unnecessary. And I was kind of disappointed, really, uh, with this show since this is the last time we see him because he doesn't come out with Flair with J.J. Dillon. I think uh, Dillon is somebody that's been a real treat uh, so far in these shows for how active he was. And the way he acted tonight, to me, is kind of why I was down on him before uh, in most of these shows where he... uh, just sort of has a smug look on his face and doesn't really contribute much to the overall matchup. Uh, but Dusty does give a good fired-up comeback and has probably, I mean, I guess this would probably be the uh, last great moment, I would say, of his career. I mean, maybe winning the Bunkhouse Stampede for the fourth <laughs> time. But, uh, Spoilers. but other than that, this is probably one of his uh, last highlights in his career. Yeah, um, I'll I'll just say that Meltzer is very, very down in this match. Um, He he reckons that um, 50% of the crowd was booing Dusty. If that's true, it didn't really come across on the tape. Yeah, I think that's another one of these. That's that's kind of part of that, too, where I don't want to act like that. I mean, there's certain evidence that the Road Warriors match, I mean, getting back to that, but I, I don't want that to turn into kind of, you know, we, in these uh, shows, we've heard some of these Meltzer talking points where he acts like people are running for the exits and all this nonsense, and you really can't see uh, any evidence of that, so I think that goes into that, too, where, you know, there may have been some people booing Dusty, but it certainly was not a 50-50 ratio of who the crowd was cheering for. So, Meltzer gives the match one star 
and he says those who watched it with me all thought the match deserved negative stars. And, and I think this is one of those things where you can see the difference between the kind of smart fan perception at the time and the kind of perception that we have now as kind of fans who've seen lots, lots of footage in 2012. Um, do, do you know what I mean by that? Like, absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that because I mean, I, I, I think the main difference is at this point in time there was people executing I mean Meltzer at this point in time would have seen the Dynamite Kid Tiger Mask matches and was raving about matches that were very action packed and featured a lot of that well now in 2012 everybody has seen uh, you know for lack of a better term a lot of crazy shit in their wrestling a lot of flips, dives high pace moves, uh, everything. And so, as a result of that, I think storyline-driven matches or, you know, brawling or certain matches that really captivate the imagination have really held up well over time because an action-packed match in 1986 is going to look really dated uh, a lot of times in 2012. Whereas a match like this that did feature a good story. I mean, I would not even call this... I mean, if I was giving star ratings on this match, I'd probably be two, two and a half. So I'm not a lot higher than Meltzer on this particular match. But I do think the structure of this match was done a lot better than it would have been given credit for in 1987. Yeah. I agree. I'm probably a little bit higher on the match than you are. Um maybe not as much as Solomon is, but um I'm I actually thought it was de- it was decent. I um it was clear that Dusty was in kind of a business mood, that he wanted to prove a point, maybe to himself as well as to Lugo and everybody else. That he still got it type of thing. And um my my only criticism is that d- d- I wonder if this hurt Lugo in any way. You know, he's he's a young he's a young guy, he's got quite a lot of momentum going for him and he's basically beaten clean in this match, um, albeit with the assistance of a chair, but, I mean, d- did it hurt Luger at all? Solomon, have you seen the kind of performance uh, after this? No, I thought, actually, I thought Luger uh, still progressed after this, I mean, he turned babyface shortly after, and he had his uh, 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 pay-per-view, you know, his two pay-per-view matches against Flair. I think what hurt Luger to me, uh, in my estimation, was Starrcade 88, him not getting the title at that show. I think that's, in my opinion with Hurt Luger, even though, I mean, he, he went hill after that and had a good hill run as the U.S. champion, I think when I, when I saw Luger not get the title in Starrcade 88, that's to me what Hurt Luger, but I think he actually kind of still progressed after this, and, um, you know, he turned babyface, and that kind of gave him some, some life there, too, so, um, yeah, I think that uh, Luger wasn't really hurt by this, and of course, Dusty winning the title came out looking like a rose. Although maybe not in the eyes of the smart fans because they were sick of Dusty by this point. But um, even if you think about it, Dusty didn't hold the title long. So um, I don't really think that it hurt the promotion by Dusty winning, even though they had, you know Dusty was all over the the place by this point of winning you know, the world title, the world tag team titles. I think he even had the national TV title at one point too. So um, I don't think it really hurt uh, the promotion or Luger for Dusty to win this. And, and I, I guess if you think about it as well, what other baby faces do they actually have at this point? I mean, right? Yeah, 
And Meltzer had mentioned, I think during this time, Meltzer had mentioned that after they turned Nikita, Nikita was pretty hot for a while, but then they just turned in, you know, kind of turned Nikita just into another guy. Um, so you're right, and Sting hadn't developed yet, so, um, and Garvin, as you know, wasn't necessarily the most over babyface since winning the title, so, and uh, with not having Magnum around, you know, Dusty's a guy. Yeah, it, it, it's weird, isn't it? There's, there's not many uh, babyfaces around, and I guess um, the point that the promotion may have been getting stale at this point uh, may bear it out, because we've seen... We've seen how many times have we seen Dusty win, and you know, against the odds now. Um, yeah, he was kind of a John Wayne, I guess. Uh, you know, <laughs> kind of the just the old country guy coming in and walking tall. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it wasn't as bad as all, it wasn't as bad as all that. I don't think. Um, so, going into the main event now, and it's Ric Flair. This is NWA World Champion Rugged Ronnie Garvin. Um, was he actually rugged at this point, or was he just Ronnie Garvin? Is that a WF thing, the rugged part? Yeah, that's WWF. He was hands of stone, Ronnie Garvin in the NWA. Right. Okay. Um, Flair comes out, um, and he seems curiously uh, strained tonight. He's got his. Also, seems to have his business face on. Um, no strutting or anything. Um, Garvin comes in, and uh, the dub music they play on this show is is, is awful. Um, and Garvin probably gets the worst of that. Um, we're told this is a no limit and no DQ match, uh, no time limit, no DQ um, going into it. Now, <laughs> um, Garvin, as uh, Tommy Miller announces his his name, gets no pop at all, and I mean like none at all. Um, which is pretty, like, I felt badly for him watching that. Um, Ross, uh, Ross compares Garvin to Rocky uh, Marciano, who I'm guessing is a boxer. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's a famous boxer out here. Um, Garvin gets uh, the ten punches on Flair early on, um, and the crowd uh, seems to wake up. They seem, you know, they seem hot for that. They, uh, they count the ten punches. Um, we get the Garvin stomp now, all across uh, all across Flair's body, and um, Frenchie Martin knows how deadly that particular move is, uh, and the crowd has come alive. Um, Gar- Garvin rakes the back, um, we get some stiff chops back and forth, um, and this is a fight. Um, we get the 87 version of the low blow, yet again from Flair, and uh, both men are down. And I should have mentioned that there's a pretty bad clip right at the start of this. It's, it's obvious that we're joining the match in progress and we've missed the first few minutes of it. Um, we get an inverted atomic drop from uh, Flair, then a reverse knife edge, uh, snap bear, uh, the signature kind of Flair knee drop gets a two. Um, Flair works on the leg. Uh, there's a massive Flair chop on Garvin's chest. Uh, we get a knee breaker, a figure four. And I really like the uh, this kind of sequence of moves here. Uh, the Flair's working on Garvin's uh, leg. Um, the crowd is uh, just generally hot for this match now. Um, Flair openly um, uh, pulls on the second rope um, when he has the figure four horn, uh, on, and he shouts at Tommy Young uh, to count him down. And then Tommy Young shouts back at him. Um, Tommy Young shouts back at him that he won't quit. 
Garvin turns the hold, um, but he's uh, really hurt and he can barely stand. Flair goes um, woo, and most of the crowd uh, audibly shout woo back at him. Um, ten minutes are gone. Feels longer, but not in a bad way, I don't think. There's a very loud Garvin sucks chant uh, from the crowd, which I think is um, really unf unfair from what I've seen. I mean, I, I, I must admit, one guy I've turned round on in a big way since watching all this stuff is Ronnie Garvin. Um, I'll, I'll say more on that later. Um, Flair eats the cage um, three times and we get some uh, cheese grater action. Garvin uh, bites Flair's head now um, and he uh, tries to escape and I wouldn't recommend biting a guy's head who's bleeding in uh, 1987 <laughs> especially especially yeah. considering both A's and the fact that Flair had probably uh, taken many a girl to Space Mountain. During yeah, for his reputation that... Uh... Yeah, he, he might have been a bigger loser than he had thought uh, doing that maneuver. Um, Garvin gets the figure four on. Um, Flair, uh, sorry, Ross um, kind of uh, talks up the intensity of this match uh, and of this show in general. Um, we get some really stiff chops back and forth now between Garvin um, and a splash from the top rope for two. Uh, we get a backslide for two. Um, some cheese grater, uh, some more chops, uh, a headbutt uh, from the top of the cage. So two men are kind of standing on the turnbuckle. Um, Garvin kind of hits his head on the top of the cage and then he headbutts him. Um, then he jumps from the top rope and gets a sunset flip too. Uh, and I think they reference that that's how he actually won the belt in the first place. Um, we get a kind of nice sequence where there where first sunset flip is reversed, but then Garvin gets back and gets two anyway. Um, we get an inverted atomic drop for another two. Garvin runs into the cage, um, and then Flair covers and gets the three. We have a new world champion for the fifth uh, time, and the Chicago crowd goes nuts. They, they don't even hide the fact that they're openly cheering for the heel. Chad, what do you make of this one? Uh, what did uh, Meltzer rate this match? Right, well, it, it's quite interesting. Um, he gives it two and a half stars, and he says, um, Garvin did lots of scratching, and they did all they did all the hard chops, but this was a disappointing match. In fact, I'd even say it was the worst player match I've seen in 16 months. The match was almost exactly the same, but worse than the Detroit title match, which everyone saw can't understand why at the biggest show of the year these guys can't vary their repertoire a bit. The last three minutes were spectacular with all of the near falls. Um, they had they had a ref bump and the ref recovered quickly save Flair from getting pinned with a KO punch. Um, finished, saw Garvin go for a Thez press. Flair dropped him backwards so Garvin hit his head on the pole on the cage and Flair pinned him give him credit for doing a clean pin two and a half stars. So that's what Nata says. Um, I, I can't understand that at all. I, to me, this is, like I discussed in the last match, to me this is the perfect mixture of a action match that's still able to convey a uh, story. The match only lasts about 17 minutes, but it's full action. It does feel uh, a lot more epic than that, but not in a bad way. It felt like a war or a battle. Uh, 
the finish with Garvin banging up against the steel cage and kind of the knockout finish was done well. Uh, Flair, I thought, was fabulous in this match with his work on the uh, leg, his uh, blading job. He really does a great, subtle blading job when he goes into the cage and starts bleeding. Uh, just overall, I thought this match was fabulous. Great moment uh, for Flair to win. Uh, I, I really, really like this match a lot. And I think this is a match that I like more each time I see it, where the first time I watched it, I thought it was good, and now I'm willing to call this. I mean, I don't think I'd say this is one of the best matches of the 80s, but it, it really may be one of my personal favorites because it's just a great, great moment with Flair coming out of the cage and erupting with the Wu uh, raising the belt. It's one of the real moments of the 80s that you take away from. Solomon, yeah, I totally concur with, I concur with Chad. I love this match. And every time I watch it, because I haven't watched it in a few years, um, I like it even more. I love the intensity. I mean, uh, you know, Garvin coming in as the, cha the champion and Flair regaining the title as a hill was a different twist and him winning the title clean, that clean and then just the match itself it was Ronnie Garvin Ric Flair 101 you know it's like the matches I remember watching a lot of the matches they had in 86 uh, and it's just stiff you know the chops and you know the you know the sunset flip by Garvin um, I, I love this match I think that you know Flair was just there was nothing Flair could do to make himself hated the way he should have been being in you know, the top heel of the promotion. And, the, you know, the crowd just loved him. And even though Garvin wasn't received warmly and, you know, had the Garvin sucks chance, I think the crowd eventually just settled down, got into the match, and um, just loved the intensity. I love when they utilize the cage, and sometimes that's my complaint about NWA cage matches, is they don't utilize it as much as, say, as the, you know, the WWF cage matches, but they did in this match. Um... And again, it was just flair. I didn't really see it like the way Meltzer saw it's kind of a formulaic flair match. I didn't see it that way. I thought it was kind of, um, because of, maybe because of the cage, but I just thought it was just a down and dirty, gritty Rick Flair, Ronnie Garvin match that you're used to seeing. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you too. I, I think Meltzer's way off on this. And I, I actually wonder if uh, Meltzer now would agree with our assessment of this match. I, I've got a feeling that if Meltzer watched this match now, He'd give it more than two and a half stars. Um, but it's it's just one of those things. It, I mean, reading some of these, um, reading some of these uh, kind of old Meltzer dirt sheets, I almost get the impression sometimes like I'm reading Keith Scott, uh, Scott Keith. Do you know what I mean by that? It's kind of like th this is almost like watching um, um, Keith on the Monday Night Wars, where like stuff that seemed to be you know the common wisdom then now just seems like completely bizarre. Um, and um, giving this match a bad review is uh, is exactly uh, yeah it is exactly and I should mention that obviously Meltzer's a lot better as a journalist than uh, than Keith but I'm just I'm just saying that his uh, his analysis of some of these matches leaves that kind of taste in the in, in the mouth um, I I go as far as to say that this is about a four and a half star match um, at least and it's one of the be better matches that we've seen so far. Uh, I actually like this as, as much as the other uh, really good Garvin match that we saw. Uh, you know, the one against uh, Tully, I think it was. Uh, yeah. It's it's really stiff all the way through. 
Um, there's real kind of hatred and intensity in it. Um, Garvin's like very professional. Like obviously, crowd is on his back and he doesn't like bat an eyelid. He just carries on with it. Um, and you know you've got to give him respect for that. Um, and I I did want to say that one like I was one of these people who my real experience of uh, Ronnie Garvin is basically the the Greg Valentine feud. Uh, you know, before watching any of the NWA stuff, for years I just thought that he was the fairly lame guy in that particular feud. Um, and, um, you know, I kind of had this idea that Garvin sucks and he's the worst world champ ever and all of these sort of things. But um, watching him in a lot of these matches, I think that he was actually really good at what he did. You know, as a kind of tough guy who was stiff, who had good intensity... You know, he he, do, he doesn't deserve um, some of the things that he that you know people typically. I, I guess he's got a bad reputation uh, when he doesn't necessarily deserve one. Um, so yeah, that's my kind of view on this match. I I thought it was really good, um, and I I really liked the Flair's uh, offense during this match. This may even be this is going to sound odd, but this may even be one of the best Ric Flair performances we've seen. Because a lot of his kind of um, big talked about five star matches didn't happen on pay per view shows. They kind of happened in between them or in Japan or wherever. So, um, yeah, this is kind of a really good one. Well, yeah, I actually think it's his best Starcade match up to this point. I mean, I like Starcade 88 match that he had with Luger, but uh-huh. up to this point, I like it far better than I like him and Race or him and Dusty the two times he wrestled Dusty or him and Nikita. No, absolutely. I agree, I agree with that. Do you agree with that, Chad? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I like the... Uh, I think I was higher on the uh, Nikita Starcade 86 match than both uh, you and Brian were. Yeah. But I, this this was head and shoulders above that, that match. So this is... I mean, I, I have not watched the uh, Nikita match from Great American Bash 85 that I know you really like, Parv. But uh, from the shows we've seen, this was by far my favorite player performance. Yeah, de- definitely. And uh, I mean, we're going to do the uh, we're going to do the final thoughts and the um, and the kind of you know the end of show awards in a minute. Um, and weirdly, I don't think I, I could be wrong, but has Flair actually won M- MPV once yet? Uh, I would say the only time would have been maybe that. Great American Bash 85 show, but I can't remember who uh, you or Brian picked. I'll just have a brief look at that. But uh, Yeah, I don't have that spreadsheet handy. While I'm doing that, um, what are your thoughts on this show overall? Because I actually think um, it's quite solid. Yeah, I, I, I don't, it's kind of a weird show for me, to be honest, because there's... If, if you look at it just by a match-by-match match basis, I, I would say the, uh, you know, the opening six-man was fine. The uh, main event was really, really good. Uh, a lot of the matches in the end were okay. But then you, I, I think when you start kind of dissecting uh, each match individually and looking at it, you can sort of, sort of uh, like, for instance, Wendelman, Steve Williams, that should have been a lot better match. That's a lot better match on paper than what we actually got. The scaffold match is disappointing because it's a scaffold match and would have been better as a regular tag. Uh, 
um, the finish of the Road Warriors match I don't like, and the Taylor-Nikita match could have had some time shaped off. So sort of that middle portion, each match I think has a uh, pretty significant flaw in it. And then when you add in the overall crowd dynamic, which, you know, whether he deserved it or not, they did not care that much about Ronnie Garvin. Uh, so that kind of makes the main event, uh, I would say, maybe suffer if you're watching the show live. It's kind of unfortunate. Uh, so it's just kind of a weird show where I wouldn't call it bad, uh, but a lot of things didn't seem to click either. Yeah, I agree with Chad on that because if you look at it from the outside without watching the matches, but you just in historical perspective, this is kind of the first Starcade. It was supposed to be the NWA's coming out party on pay-per-view and they kind of got sabotaged by Vince. And then the Garvin-Flair match because Garvin was like the lame duck champion that didn't defend his title within the 45-day period or whatever. Um, and then, of course, not getting the good reaction. It's kind of not, historically, it's not looked at as one of the... Uh, better Starcades, but if, you know, uh, the main event itself, you watch the match itself, you forget that Garvin's really not that over as a champion, and the match itself, I thought was great, and then, um, like Chad said, you go match by match, you can find some pieces here and there, you know, Nikita Taylor, of course, Williams and Wyndham, um, I like the tag title match, but then again, the ending with the Road Warriors not getting the title didn't sit well with a lot of people, so... It's kind of like, uh, you know, I could see both sides where someone wouldn't really like the show overall. Then I could see where if you're just watching it and taking it for what it is, um, you do like it because the crowd was hot. You know, the, the, the crowd was hot for the show. Um, historical perspective is that this is where kind of the NWA uh, might have jumped the shark because of the pay-per-view situation with Vince uh, sabotaging them. And then there was some controversy as to why they held it in Chicago. And some people speculate that this kind of really hurt them in the Greensboro uh, market was because that's where they traditionally held the Starcades. So that's kind of how I feel about the show. Yeah, and we, we should mention, I probably should have done this earlier, but now is not a bad time, that this is the first time, I believe, that um, I, I, I believe that this show, Starcade 87, is actually the first pay-per-view that NWA attempted. None of the previous shows that we've done, Chad, have been were actually pay-per-view shows. Right, They right. may have gone out on closed circuit, but this is the first time they attempted it. And this is when Vince did one of his famous power plays. Um, obviously, Survivor Series 87 is the first time they tried Survivor Series, and I believe they, they ran it the same night, Thanksgiving 1987, um, head-to-head with Starcade. And uh, obviously, you know, they were a couple of years into WrestleMania by this point, and Vince um, basically held all of the uh, all of the cable companies to, to to ransom. If you don't carry my pay-per-view show uh, on Thanksgiving night, you're not going to get WrestleMania. If or, in fact it was it wasn't that. If it was if you carry the Starcade show, um, you won't get WrestleMania. So obviously uh, Crockett really struggled to get people to carry the show. Yeah, that was a big thing uh, back then because pay-per-view really wasn't what it would become, you know, even a year later where uh, it was only Vince had tried it. And even when he tried it at first with the Wrestling Classic 95, it wasn't too it wasn't too successful at it. And then by this point, I think WrestleMania 3 was really the first where he really made a killing on it. I think he did do it. He did good on WrestleMania 2 as well, but 
you know, uh, I guess the cable operators were kind of pissed after this because they felt they, there was lost revenue, so Vince wasn't able to pull this type of move on Crockett again. And uh, and it's also where Crockett kind of, st- like, they really start going head-to-head now in 88, because um, I, I believe we're going to have the first clash soon. Um, and obviously the Clash of the Champions was um, Crockett's way of putting out free free to air wrestling up against the pay per view, oftentimes, which they did uh, all throughout 1998. Um, I, I, I don't know how effective that was, but maybe uh, maybe when we come to the Clashes, we can talk about that a bit more. Yeah, we'll even see that again uh, probably in the next show we did with the Bunkhouse Stampede. That's when. Uh, Vince did the first Royal Rumble on uh, USA to go head to head with that. So Bunkhouse Stampede. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the uh, the actual Bunkhouse Stampede pay per view that WCW or NWA tried to run. Um. So it, it's kind of a back and forth. I'm just looking at the uh, Survivor Series '87 card. That's a show I know I haven't watched in a, a long time, so I don't know about the quality of comparing which show overall was better. Uh, only four matches on Survivor Series in 1987, and kind of a funny little anecdote is on the Wikipedia page for it, it shows Earl Hebner as one of the referees, which we know is not the case. <laughs> Unless he was at two places at one time. So <laughs> No, it was his evil twin brother. <laughs> yeah, it has, it has both of them listed, but uh, we know uh, that was... Not true. Now, those first two Survivor Series have got some. The has it got a big ten man? Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, this, yeah, this one is. Uh, I'll, I'll just read the. It's twenty man tag team Survivor Series match. Strike Force, Young Stallions, Fabulous Rujos, Killer Bees, and British Bulldogs versus Heart Foundation, Islanders, Demolition, Bolsheviks. Uh, in the new dream team. No, no, that no. match went 37 minutes. That is a fantastic match. If you haven't seen it, watch that. Because it, it's, um, it's one of the, you know, one of the great kind of, uh, there aren't many really, really, really good WF, uh, pay-per-view matches in the 80s, but that, that's definitely one of them that I point to. It's just, yeah, I don't, I remember the big tag match from the, uh, the next year with the double turn with the Powers of Pain and yeah. Demolition and the Conquistadors, oh, yeah. uh, their long run in it, but I, I don't remember this one. I, I, it's probably been five or six years since I saw this show. And uh, the Survivor Series 87, for some reason, my local video store never, they had all the old uh, WrestleManias and all the old uh, SummerSlams, like 88, 89. So when I first started watching in 90 and 91, I would get all of those, but uh, they never seemed to carry like 87, 88, or 89 Survivor Series, so those are kind of blind spot shows that I just don't remember fondly. Yeah, we had the same situation here. I mean, um, I don't know if I told you this before, but uh, around the time I was an undergraduate in uni about 10, 10 years ago, I had like a grand sitting in my bank account. I didn't know what to do with it, so I started collecting all the VHSs that I didn't have. I spent uh-huh. like, a huge amount of money on wrestling, and that um, uh, Survivor Series one is the most difficult. Well, it was ten years ago. It's probably even more difficult now. It was the hardest show to find on VHS. I think I probably and like typically spend about a fiver on a VHS. Um, yeah. That probably I had to spend over twenty five pounds for, because 
it, it's just really it was hard to get hold of um, and like I had to kind of beat seven or eight people on eBay just to get that one so yeah t tough show to um, to get um, that that big I don't know if you remember but at the start of all of the WF uh, VHS tapes they'd have that um, kind of uh, guy saying you know if you want body slams if you want backbreakers and they'd have that music playing do 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 um, it was <laughs> like the Coliseum type music yeah, right yeah 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 it was it was always the Coliseum music and it, um, it was always that uh, t big twenty man match that they that they show during that um, during that kind of montage sequence it was like everything everything you saw was from that match. The best of WWF American Wrestling. WrestleMania. SummerSlam. Survivor Series. Royal Rumble. UK Rampage. And many more specialist releases. Available only through Silver Vision. The official distributor of the World Wrestling Federation video. So if it's body slam, side suplexes, clotheslines, drop kicks and power slams that you're after increase your library of wwf videos with some of these spectacular annual wwf events of the World Wrestling Federation's matches. Anyway, let's uh, let's get back to um, Starcade '87. I think, on balance, um, I would have probably watched the Survivor Series, to be honest, um, just because I don't know, slightly more fun, just an interesting concept, um, but. Um, I wouldn't have been that disappointed if I'd been at the show. Um, I would have probably definitely gone to Royal Rumble 88 over Bunkhouse Stampede 88. Um, because I'd already, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> already know who's going to win Bunkhouse Stampede. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's go through our end of um, show awards then. Um, so, first up we go for Match of the Night. Um and uh, Solomon, since you're the guest, you can go first. Yeah, I got to go with what seems to be the consensus is Flair Garvin. I just thought that they, I mean, it was a main event and they performed as they were in the main event. You know, the, it was a typical Flair Garvin hard hitting match, but in a cage and with the twist of Flair as the challenger, getting a clean win. And, uh, you know, the crowd was into the match. Even though if they weren't into Garvin uh, in of, of himself, they were into the match. And um, I just thought they did a great job, so I'm going with Flair and Garvin. Chad? I, uh, I agree with that. Uh, Flair and Garvin would be my match of the night. Uh, I, would, I would give an honorable mention to the tag team title match because I really do think it was one of the better Road Warrior matches I've seen, but uh, Flair and Garvin was a great, great match. And uh, 
unsurprisingly, I'm also going to go with clean sweep, Flair versus Garvin, no, no argument. Great chemistry, Garvin just gave everything uh, as well. Um, which, considering the fact, considering the context, considering the fact he knew he was going to drop it, uh, the title is, uh, is honourable, I think. Um, especially at this time when there were so many kind of dicks in the business who, you know, didn't want to job clean and all of this sort of thing. Um, it's good to see somebody being a pro. So, MVP, and I, I've just uh, I've just got the um, page where we have. Um, if you're a listener, by the way, if you go onto the uh, if you go onto the kind of home page um, on the drop down menu, you can see a list of the end of show uh, award results. It's a little bit hidden there, but um, there's a list of every single uh, match of the night and uh, MVP um, on there. I'm having a look, and the only person ever to pick Ric Flair as an MVP so far was me in Great American Bash '85. Uh, Brian, went with, Brian went with Nikita Koloff that night, so he's he's only ever actually won it once, which is amazing to think of it. So Solomon, MVP for the night. I gotta go with Flair. I gotta go with the Nature Boy. He he, he performed. He's always performed the best when the lights were on, and you know I think that. <clears throat> Him going after uh, the title was a new twist. He obviously was over with the fans. Even though he's supposed to be the hill and he's supposed to be hated, uh, I don't think that was to any detriment to him and what he did. He just, I think the charisma that he had just drew fans to him, whether he was a hill or babyface. And just his performance, I don't think it was the typical Formula Flair match like Meltzer seems to indicate. Uh, even within Garvin Flair matches, I thought it was a little different than their typical match, other than it was just hard-hitting which was the case in every match that he had with Garvin. So uh, I'm going to go with Ric Flair. Chad? I will agree. I will go with Ric Flair. Uh, and just, I mean, to me, this was one of his signature performances that if you're making, I mean, Flair has a long list of great matches, but I would say even if you want to expand it to top 20, Five list, which all those matches for Flair would be great, great matches. I would include this in probably one of the top twenty-five matches of his life. Yeah, it's it's difficult to argue with. Um, I mean, I I don't think that the crowd. I don't think that the crowd necessarily were um, cheering. Like, I think they were cheering him because he wasn't Ronnie Garvin. <laughs> uh, but that was part of it. And I also think that he's got this weird thing that. Um, Especially with the hardcore NWA crowd, it's, it's like uh, Ric Flair's a heel, but he's kind of our heel. Do, do you know what I mean by that? So, like, it, oh, yeah, he, yeah. he's a, he's a guy who they could boo or they could cheer. Doesn't it doesn't matter. It's like, but it's kind he's kind of theirs. Um, so, I can I, I understand the dynamic uh, going on here. That you know, probably next week if he on a regular TV match they might boo him, but um, uh, in a big kind of match occasion like this. You can imagine just being in the stadium, Ric Flair's going to win the world title, you know, who wouldn't be cheering? Um, so, uh, I don't know, I mean, th there, are, there are two other contenders I've got in my mind here, it's between three people. Um, I actually thought Jim Ross was terrific on commentary during this show. Um, he, he got over how big of a deal everything was, put over the history, and uh, he kind of, this was the first time that they were really kind of, uh, got over how big a deal Starcade was, and he made it feel like more of an event for me. Um, probably not quite MVP type stuff, 
but it's probably one of the best commentary performances in some time that we've seen. Um, I, I also wanted to give a mention to Arn Anderson, who um, has never won won MVP so far, um, but his um, kind of healing in that tag match was was really quite fun. I thought he was really good in that match. Um, but I'm going to go with Ric Flair as well. Uh, it's difficult to argue uh, against his performance in that match, especially his uh, offense. You know, a lot of the time Flair um, seems to spend most of his time selling, but uh, he's really vicious uh, when he gets on it. And the way he just kind of gets to work on Garvin's knee in that segment where he gives the knee breaker and um, goes straight into the, straight into the figure four is uh, is a really good moment. So Flair for me. And finally, we come to the point where we have to give out uh, the Billy Graham Award. Solomon. Uh, this award's funny. Uh, I thought about three candidates. Uh, the first thought I had was maybe a co-winners with Dr. Death and Barry Whittem for the you know, the boring match they had, but I'm going to kind of go with something different. So I have a feeling that maybe uh, your guys' uh, Billy Graham Award winners. I kind of, I'm going to go with Nikita Koloff. And reason for that is I really think it was at this time that Nikita really started declining. I mean, the one thing he had going for him was that physical kind of presence like a Goldberg. And I really thought he had lost it by this time. I mean, he was still a big guy. He was still in good shape, but he wasn't the monster that he had, he had been, you know, in 85 and 86. And I just never thought much of his ring work. Uh, and in this match, I just thought it was too much of a burial uh, on Terry Taylor. So I'm going to go with Nikita as my uh, Billy Graham Award winner. Interesting. Chad? Yeah, my... Uh so Solomon knew right where I was headed because I am going to pick uh, one member of the uh, Dr. Death Barry Window match, and I will say uh, Dr. Death, uh, as I've really talked about a lot in the past few episodes, he's somebody that's really, really uh, raised his reputation in my eyes, uh, finishing the 1994 yearbook. He was excellent in that, and here he just was... Very uh, kind of disorganized all over the map. Didn't the match didn't tell a story. I really hated this match. Uh, so he is my Billy Graham winner. So so, so it's interesting because I've actually, unlike in previous weeks where I just kind of leave it to chance, I've, I've written down who I think, you know, just in the interests of fair play, I've written down who I think before uh, actually talking to you guys. And I've actually written down Nikita Koloff. Um, same, same as you, Solomon. Um, th- mainly because you can't get away with having a basically 15-minute armbar during a match. I mean, um, what, what was that? And I didn't like the. W- I mean, it may not be his fault. It may have been booked that way, but um, I didn't like just the degree to which he totally no sold all of uh, Terry Taylor's uh, offense. I actually think he took it too far, and. Um, Cross the line where uh, he was actually being a bit of a dick to Terry Taylor. Um, I, d- I don't know if you ag- I don't know if you agree with that, but it seemed to me that he was really giving him nothing and rubbing it in as well. You know, b- being a little bit of a dick about it, which I I didn't like very much. Yeah, and I think if you're going to be the babyface, you've got to have some vulnerability in a match. I mean, I know he was he's the bigger guy, 
but even you know in a Hulk Hogan match, he's going to show some vulnerability. Uh, so that's what I like to see from a babyface in the match at some point. You know, you don't have to completely sell like a Ricky Morton or Rick Steamboat, but at least show some type of vulnerability. I don't think I saw that from Nikita really. Yeah, and I probably wouldn't have picked him had he sold one of that. You know, to no sell the suplex is one thing, but then to no sell the pile driver about a minute later, about you know to to reverse both those moves, um, just as Taylor's getting a tiny bit of momentum going um, in a match where he's been kicking uh, Taylor's ass like the past. 15 minutes is uh, a little bit selfish, so I don't like that. And just, just like I picked uh, Road Warrior Hawk um, uh, at the Great American Bash '86 for the same reason, I'm picking Nikita uh, Koloff here. So there we go. That that wraps things up. Where, where do we go from here to the Bunkhouse Stampede? Is that the next uh, show or is it uh, Clash One? I would say the Bunkhouse Stampede comes before Clash One. Uh, so that'll be the next show that we'll probably be checking in with. Very uh, kind of, kind of a, a a show that you know, certainly not the most interesting show in the world, but uh, kind of some interesting matchups that we don't often see, as far as you know, Flair in a title defense against Royal Warrior Hawk, uh, kind of him in the singles. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how those matches play out. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to it, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Solomon. I did you enjoy doing this? All right, thank you. Oh, yeah, it's fun. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Chad. It was, it was a blast talking about wrestling. Yeah, uh, it's we'll, my favorite we'll, pastime. We'll, we'll besides watching it, we'll definitely have you on again. Um, and what was the what was the show that you actually attended? The Bash '88. Well, yeah, I was Bash '88, but it wasn't a pay per view. It was a house show here in LA. It was part of a Bash tour, but it had the War Games match. So. Um, it was, a, it was pretty cool. Fantastic. Well, 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 well thank you very much, guys. And uh, join us. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And jo join us again uh, on Where the Big Boys Play. All right. See you guys. All right, guys. All right. Bye, Chad. I'm going to watch the end of the, the Viking game. <laughs> all right. <laughs> see ya. See ya. Bye. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts, and the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>